In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke, chapter number 24. And, of course, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. We've been on a journey with Jesus, is what we've called it. And we've been uh, spending, we spent uh, really over, an e- over a year uh, studying the Gospel of Luke together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we have planned it so that we would be here in Luke chapter 24. On this day, of course, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, of course, I preached on the subject of the resurrection. And if you remember this morning, we dealt with Luke 24 verses 1 through 12, and also verses 36 through 46, which had to do with his resurrection and his appearing before the disciples. On Wednesday night, we're going to finish the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be dealing with verses 47 through 53, and I'll be preaching on the subject of the ascension of Christ, which is probably the least talked about event of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, but we'll be learning about the ascension, and I think you'll be interested to know about that. Tonight, we're going to deal with these verses, 13 through 35, and this morning, as we were going through our passage, I told you that we were skipping these verses, 13 through 35, because I'd be preaching a sermon about that tonight, and the reason that I think this passage, this portion needs its own sermon is because it's such a great passage, and it's often known as the passage of the road to Emmaus, and of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has risen in verses 1 through 12. The women are now aware. They went to the sepulcher expecting a body, and they have been told that Jesus was resurrected, and they have gone back and told the 11 what the angels told them. But at this point, no one has actually seen the risen Christ. Now, after this story, verses 13 through 35, we see Jesus appear to the disciples Uh, and he has them handle them and all those things. But this is actually the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is visibly seen after his resurrection. Now, if you study the Gospels, you'll notice that after the resurrection, there's documented for us several events, several times in which Jesus appeared to his disciples in his glorified body. And some of the Gospel writers give us different stories and different things. Luke chose to give us really this one story, and he kind of goes into detail about it. It's a very interesting story. And what we see in this passage, Luke 24, 13 through 35, is two disciples. They're not necessarily 12 of the apostles. They're just two regular followers of Jesus Christ, and they are on the road to a town named Emmaus. In verse 13, you'll notice there the Bible says, And behold, two of them went that same day, to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. And of course, today we know that from Jerusalem to Emmaus is about a seven-mile trip. So these two disciples are on their way, walking down this road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and it's a seven-mile walk, seven-mile hike as they make it to this town. Notice verse 14, and they talk together of all these things. What things? Well, we know that this day that they are uh, taking this trip to Emmaus is the first day of the week. And we know that Jesus has resurrected. And what they're talking about is the events that have taken place over the last several days. The fact that Jesus was arrested, the fact that he was crucified, the fact that he was buried. And now, three days later, there is talk of the fact that his body is missing. Verse 14 says, And they talked together of all these things which had happened, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, want you to notice here verse 15, Jesus himself drew near. We, of course, see here the resurrected Christ. This is Jesus in his glorified body. And the Bible tells us that he himself drew near and went with them. Now, if you understand the ancient world, you'll understand that traveling through these roads in these ways was a common thing. Obviously, in these days, the primary mode of transportation was walking. We see this all throughout the Bible. When Jesus tells the famous story of the Good Samaritan, he tells the story of a man who's on a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And we know that 
on that road, he, would, he was assaulted. The story that Jesus tells us about the Jew that was helped by the good Samaritan was that he was on this road and he was uh, attacked and he was robbed and he was beaten and he was left to die. He was left half dead. So as people in this ancient world, and I, I want you to understand this because you and I live in America in 2023. We live in California. So this might seem a little odd to us because every, and especially now in our day and age, everybody's so has their face in a screen that it's odd to ever have any sort of human communication or contact with anybody. And if anybody, you know, it'd be an odd thing if, if, if you looked at someone or made eye contact with somebody or, uh, you know, waved at someone, I mean, you would be probably might get arrested if you tried to do anything like that. But on, in this day, in the ancient world, it was not out of the ordinary for you to be walking down the road and for other people who were walking down the road to even strangers to begin to walk together and talk as they went because of the fact that it was a very dangerous time and there's strength in numbers. So if you are walking down a road, you've got a seven-mile trip ahead of you, and you happen to come across a stranger, you would probably begin to walk together and talk together as you go down the road because it would be a safe thing to do. So Jesus, the Bible tells us, drew near and went with them. Notice verse 16, but their eyes were holding that they should not know him. So Jesus appears and begins to walk down this road towards Emmaus with this, these men. I want you to understand the context. You have two disciples going down the road to Emmaus. As they're walking, they're talking very lively about the events that have taken place. And then this third man, who happens to be on the road with them, begins to walk with them. The Bible tells us this man was Jesus, but they did not recognize him. They did not see him, and they uh, did not realize that it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say a couple of things about this, and I'll say this just by way of introduction. Go to John, if you would. Keep your place there in Luke 24. That's our text for tonight. But if you would turn over to John chapter 20, just the next book over after Luke, about the book of John. And let me say this. It's very common for, as we see the appearings of Jesus after his, after his resurrection, it was very common for him to not be recognized after his resurrection, for him to appear to his disciples and his disciples to not realize that it was him. Let me give you an example of that. John chapter 20 and verse 11, we have another example of this same thing. John 20, 11, the Bible says, but Mary, this is of course the famous Mary Magdalene, Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. This is again she has not yet seen the resurrected Christ. She's standing outside of the sepulcher. She's weeping. She's mourning. The Bible says, and as she wept, she stood down and looked into the, uh, she uh, stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, verse 12, and see two angels in white sitting, the one on the, uh, at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, woman, why weepest thou? She said unto them, because they have taken away my Lord and I know not where they have laid him. If you remember from this morning, we talked about the fact that nobody expected nobody. Nobody was expecting that the body would not be there. Here we have Mary, who's weeping at the sepulcher. The angels ask her, what are you crying about? What we, why weepest thou? And she says, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Verse 14, and when she had thus said, she turned herself back. Notice what the Bible says, and saw Jesus standing but notice what it says, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Mary, and she turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. So I want you to notice that it was a common thing for the disciples to not recognize Jesus after his resurrection. Now, there's a lot of questions about this, and let me just give you some thoughts. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what the Bible actually tells us, but I want you to understand some things. First of all, there might have actually been a physical change to the body of Christ. Uh, we believe that his glorified body, of course, looked like his body before, and your glorified body, if you're saved, at the resurrection, at the rapture, uh, will look, you will look 
the way you look today. I know that's disappointing to some of you, but it's the truth. We know that because of other passages in Scripture where people in heaven are identified by their looks. Even the Lord Jesus Christ himself, when he appears in his glorified body to John on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation, the Bible says that his likeness was as the Son of Man. So we know that he looked the way he did. His figure might have changed a little bit. Isaiah 52, which is part of the prophetic The famous prophecy in Isaiah 53, one of the most famous prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, tells us that his face was marred above any man. So there might have actually been some sort of uh, disfigurement to his body that made him look a little different, and, and, and that's up in the air, and you could maybe consider that. Here, for example, with the story with Mary, she... The Bible tells us, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne uh, him, hence tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him. But the Bible also tells us here in verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Mary, and then the Bible says, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni. So obviously she, ha- she was not facing him. He walked up behind her. And he said to her, woman, why weepest thou, who seek him, who, who, whom seekest thou, and she supposing him to be the gardener. So we see that here. But we see this in other passages as well. Go back to Luke 24. I won't take the time to go through them. But we see Jesus, he goes to the disciples when they're out fishing. They're not supposed to be fishing, but they go back to their old life. Peter said, I go a fishing, and Jesus appears to them on the shore, and he begins to talk with them, and they don't realize that it was Jesus. And part of this had to do with maybe the fact that his face had changed a little bit. Part of it had to do with the actual physicality. Maybe they had their backs to him. Maybe he was far away on the shore. But the Bible tells us here in Luke 24 that one of the reasons why they could not recognize Jesus, and I would say the main reason why they could not recognize Jesus, was because he did not want them to. Notice Luke 24, 16. But their eyes were holden. The word holden means they were held back, that they should not know him. This was miraculous. God had performed a miracle here. Jesus had performed a miracle where their eyes had been held back, where they saw this individual, but they were unable to recognize him as Jesus. Now, you might be wondering, why is it that Jesus would do this after the resurrection? And On Wednesday night, I'll be speaking on the subject of the ascension, and we're going to talk about the 40 days between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how Jesus' interaction with the disciples changed and was not the same as it was before. So we'll, we'll deal with that on another night, but let me just say this. I believe that, to some extent, one of the reasons why he would make it so that they would not recognize him, part of it was just the fact that he wanted to surprise them. He wanted to be able to speak with them and then surprise them that, hey, you weren't expecting me to be resurrected, but here I am. Another reason might be, as we get into this passage, I think you will see it, that he's trying to get an honest report from them. And if they would have known that they were talking to Jesus, they might not have been as honest as they are. So he was trying to speak to them and not have them change their thoughts or attitudes based off who he was. And we know that uh, history tells us there are many uh, accounts of famous kings who would go out into the community and go out and speak to the people of their kingdom and they would dress themselves as peasants and they would dress themselves as the common man so that they could speak to people without people thinking they were the king and therefore changing the way that they would speak to them. I feel like I can understand this to an extent being a pastor. I've noticed sometimes when I meet people, they'll speak to me and they'll maybe act just normal. And as soon as they find out, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor of a church. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything is like, oh, well, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, two minutes ago, it was like blankety blank, blank, you know. And so oftentimes people will change the way they speak or the way they act or the way they uh, portray themselves based off the person they're speaking to. So I think that Jesus wanted to have a conversation with these men, but he wanted an honest conversation. So therefore, their eyes were holding back that they could not recognize him. And I'd like to give you some thoughts regarding this conversation that Jesus has with these men 
on the road to Emmaus. I'd like to give you four thoughts, and maybe you can write these down. I always encourage you to take notes, and on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some things. I'd like you to notice, first of all, we see in this story the disappointment that they had in Christ. The disappointment that they had in Christ. And this might be the reason why Jesus held back their eyes. Their eyes were holden. Because he wanted to speak to them about their heartache. And their heartache was actually rooted in the disappointment that they had in Christ himself. We read, of course, that these men were on the road to Emmaus. We read that Jesus appears to them, and he begins to walk down the road and to speak to them. Verse 17, the Bible says, and he said unto them. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples, but they do not know it is Jesus speaking to them. He says to them, what manner of communication are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? I want you to notice their hopelessness. They are sad, and Jesus is identifying. He's he's pretty much walking up. He walks up to them, and he says, What's wrong? What manner of communication are these that ye have one to another? As ye walk, he says, and are sad. Notice verse 18. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? I want you to notice the way they respond. They said, You must be new around here. You must not be around from, from these parts. You must be a stranger. You must be a foreigner just traveling through. You're asking us what we're sad about and what we're talking about. Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and has not known the things that are come to pass here in these days? Jesus begins to walk with his disciples and he asks them the question, What are you talking about? What is this communication? Why are you so sad? And they respond to him, you must be new. You must have just got here. Do you really not know? I mean, it's the talk of the town. It's what everybody's talking about. It's the front page. It's the headlines. Everybody knows what's going on. You must have just got here. What do you mean? What are we talking about? They said, art thou and uh, uh, only a stranger in Jerusalem and has not known the things that are come to pass there in these days? Notice the response of Jesus, verse 19. And he said unto them. And if you've ever doubted the, uh, the, the, the sense of humor of Jesus, I want you to grasp it fully here. Because Jesus, in my opinion, is having a little fun with these guys. He's Jesus. He's the resurrected Christ. He was crucified and buried. He was beaten. And he uh, is now resurrected from the grave. He's walking with his disciples who he knows well and they know him well. But he has holding back their eyes. And he walks up and he says, what are you so sad about? And they said, what do you mean what are we so sad about? You must be new around here. Everybody knows what we're sad about. Don't you know what's going on? Don't you know of the things that have happened around here? And then Jesus says to them, what things? What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But I want you to notice verse 21. Verse 21 is probably why their eyes were holding back. Verse 21 is probably why Jesus did not want to be recognized. Because I don't know that they would have been this honest and truthful with Jesus if they would have known that he was listening. I want you to notice the disappointment that they had in Christ. In verse 21, they say this, But we trusted that it had been he he, which should have redeemed Israel. They said, we trusted. We had confidence. We believed that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. What does that mean? They thought he was the Messiah. They thought that he was the Christ. They thought that he was the anointed one. They thought that he was the chosen one. And I don't have time to get into these details, but often what happens with these Old Testament Jews and what happened with these uh, believers in the New Testament during the life of Christ is that they had the wrong idea of the Messiah. 
See, the Bible prophesies the coming of the Messiah in two different ways. You have the first coming and the second coming. The first uh, uh, time that he comes to this earth and the second time he comes to the earth. The first time he comes as a lamb. The second time he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The first time he came in humility, the next time he will come in glory. The first time he came as a babe, the next time he will come as a king. And what they thought was they did not understand the prophecies of the first coming of Christ. They thought that the Christ who would come would be the one who would come with a rod of iron, who would be the redeemer of Israel, who would, uh, uh, they trusted that he had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And then they say, verse 21, and beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. And I said it this morning, but I'll say it again because it's Easter, and this is really just another Easter sermon. And it is this, that our religion is not a religion of the teachings of Christ. It is not a religion of the parables of Christ. It's not a religion of the miracles of Christ. Our religion is Christ. The religion of Christ, the belief in Christ, the idea of Christ, the message of Christ. We talked about it this morning, but it hinged on what he claimed about himself. And the problem with Jesus, if I could say it that way, was that he said too much about himself. He said, I am the son of God. He said, I am, seven different times in the book of John. He says, I am the way. I am the door. I am the bread. He, he equated himself to uh, deity because he was deity. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He goes to a funeral where he resurrects a man, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The ministry of Christ. And look, you need to understand this because today Christianity hinges on is Jesus who he said he was. And for these disciples, the problem was that the man that they had been following, the man that they had been trusting had said too much about himself. And like we said this morning, when Jesus died, everything he claimed about himself died with him. So we see their disappointment the disappointment they had in Christ. Look at it again, verse 21. But we trusted, past tense. You're not trusting anymore? Well, we did trust, but then he died. We believed that he was life, but then he died. We believed that he was the resurrection, but then he died. We see the disappointment of the disciples, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us, notice again, made us astonished. The word astonished means filled with sudden and overpowering surprise. Made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen visions of angels which said he was alive. And certain of them, which were with us, went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said. Look at it, last part of verse 24. But him they saw not. They said, are you new around here? It's all everyone's talking about. Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel, but then he died. And everything he claimed about himself died with him. Do you understand why Jesus might want to have held their eyes back? He wanted to document this for us. There was a disappointment that these disciples had. And it's not just these two, all of them. The disappointment they had in Christ. But I want you to notice, secondly, tonight, not only do we see the disappointment they had in Christ, we also see the disbelief they had of Christ. Look at verse 25. Then he. Now up to this point, they've done all the talking. He's just asked questions. What manner of communication are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sat? And they're telling him all about Jesus and how they're disappointed and how they trusted and they thought he was, but now he's dead and now all of that's gone. 
And then the Bible tells us in verse 25, then he said unto them, O fools. Imagine a stranger saying that to you. O fools and slow of heart to believe. He said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. Notice verse 27, and beginning at Moses and at all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scripture, uh, in all the scripture, the things concerning himself. I want you to notice that they had a disbelief. They had a disbelief, and Jesus said, you're slow of heart. He says, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. He said, isn't this what the prophets have spoken? Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all, uh, uh, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's run a few verses real quickly. Go to Acts chapter 3. You're there in Luke. Keep your place in Luke, please. And go to the book of Acts. After, after Luke, you have John and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 3. Luke, John, and then Acts. Acts chapter number 3. See, the Bible had all the answers for them already. Let me just give you a quick application. Everything that breaks your heart. Because isn't that what we see with these disciples? Broken hearts. By the way, Jesus is gentle with them. He's not upset with them. He understands the situation they find themselves in. They had put all their eggs. They had put all their Easter eggs into that basket of Jesus. And then he died. They, they, they don't believe. They're disappointed. But please understand something. The problem was not with the Bible. The problem was with their lack of understanding of the Bible. The Bible had already answered these questions. The Bible had already told them these things. That's why he says, beginning at Moses and in all the prophets, he began to explain to them what the Bible says. They got it, praise God. Acts chapter 3, look at verse 18. Notice the disciples after the ascension. Acts 3, 18. But those things which God before, this is the disciples speaking, which God before has showed by the mouth of, notice what it says, all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Acts 3.18, look at Acts 3.21, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. We'll look at this verse again during the ascension, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Go to Acts chapter 10, look at verse 43. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Notice what the Bible says. Acts 10, 43, to him give all the prophets witness. The him there is referring to Jesus. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Do you know that the entire Bible is about Jesus Christ? You know that Jesus is the red thread that goes through the entire Bible. You say, Pastor, why are we going to begin a brand new uh, Bible study uh, next Sunday night in the book of Numbers? We're going to go chapter by chapter through the book of Numbers. Why would we do that? Why are we going to start a Bible study, not this Wednesday night, but next Wednesday night in the book of Galatians and go verse by verse through the book of Galatians? Why is it that for the last 12 years you have gone and taught us line upon line, chapter after chapter, book after book, over the last 12 years here at Verity Baptist Church, we've studied verse by verse the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and Ezra and, 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 and Nehemiah. Uh, excuse me, not Ezra. Nehemiah and Esther. We've studied Job. We started Isaiah. We started Ezekiel. We studied Amos. We studied Joel. We've studied, uh, we, we've studied Matthew. We're finishing up Luke. We've studied Romans and Acts and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Ephesians and Jude and we're going to keep going till we study the whole Bible you say why because the whole thing is about Jesus Christ every chapter you can find Jesus in it every book you can find Jesus in it the entire Old Testament led us up to Jesus the entire Gospels is all about Jesus the entire epistles and everything after the Gospels just points us back to Jesus it's all about Jesus the Bible says to him give all the prophets witness it's all about Jesus And all the answers were there. 
And I just want you to understand this. Whatever problem you have, whatever heartache you have, whatever issue you're dealing with tonight, whatever makes you sad, that you might not ever say out loud, you might not ever say it to me because I'm a pastor and you just wouldn't say those things to a pastor. You might not say it out loud because you're afraid that God would hear you or Jesus would hear you, but there are some disappointments you've had. There are some things that have not gone the way you thought they should have. There are some issues that have happened in your life and you're sad and your countenance has fallen and there's depression there and discouragement. But let me tell you something. The problem is not in the Bible. The Bible has the answers. You just need to learn the Bible and find the answers. The Bible has the answers to every problem. The Bible has the answers to every issue. The Bible can help you with anything and everything. The issue is not with the Word of God. It's with our lack of knowledge of the Word of God. This is why Hosea said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But Jesus begins to deal with their disbelief. Jesus begins, the Bible tells us, go, go back if you would to Luke 24. Verse 27 and beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Why? Because, look, you need it all. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Amen. All of it. You say, you're going to preach through the whole Bible? I'm going to preach through the whole Bible. You say, what are you going to do once you've done that? I'm going to retire. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, we've already preached through like 45% of the Bible in 12 years. I, I think we could finish the rest of the thing in the next 10 years. I'll probably be only, I'll be, four, I'm 37 years old right now. I mean, I'll probably be 45, 46 by the time we're done. You say, what are we going to do once we finish? We're going to do it again. Amen. We're going to dig into it again. We're going to learn it again. We're going to study it again. Because the Bible is alive. Because the Bible is fresh. Because the Bible has the answers that you need. Beginning at Moses and at all the prophets, the Bible tells us. We see the disappointment they had in Christ. We see the belief they had in Christ. But I'd like you to notice, thirdly, there in verse 27, we see the discourse they were given by Christ. Notice this in verse 27. And, began, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, notice this little phrase. He expounded unto them. He expounded unto them. You say, what does that mean? He began to preach a sermon to them. He began to teach a Bible study to them. This was the greatest sermon never recorded. Praise God for all the sermons that are recorded in the Bible. Some amazing sermons recorded in the Bible. The, the, the great Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We've got the other sermons where Jesus rebuking the Pharisees and other chapters of the gospel. We've got the sermon, some of the sermons of the Apostle Paul and others, uh, Stephen and others who preach sermons, great sermons. And the prophets, we've got sermons, transcribed sermons they preach. Praise God for that. Here we have a sermon that wasn't transcribed. We're just told that he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You say, why would he do that? Here's why. Because they had a disbelief. And the answer to your lack of faith is the word of God. Amen. Let me prove it to you. Go to Romans chapter 10. You're there in Luke. Go past John, past Acts, into the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10. Luke, John, Acts, Romans. They had a problem. They were discouraged. They were disappointed because of their disbelief. So he gave them the word of God. Romans 10, 17. So then. Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Amen. You know what you and I need more than anything? The hearing of the word of God. This is why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, you don't have to turn there, he said, despise not prophesying. Prophesying there is a term, the way that you and I would say it would be preaching. Despise not preaching. You know what I would do if I were you? I would be under the preaching of God's word every chance I got. Amen. Every opportunity I got, every time the word of God was open, and a man of God you, by the power of God, expounding on the word of God, 
You say, why? Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And it is our lack of faith that brings us problems. It is the fact that we don't trust. The problem's not that the Bible's not there, but we're not trusting what the Bible says. You say, why don't we do what the Bible says? Because the truth is, you would never say it out loud. I would never say it out loud. But the reason we don't do what the Bible tells us to do is because we don't trust the Bible. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a marriage the way the Bible tells you to have a marriage. Are you listening to me? The the reason that that a wife fights submitting to her husband, though that's what the Bible says, is because, honestly, you never say this out loud. You never say it to me. You never say it to God. You'd only say it to Jesus if your eyes were holding back and you didn't think you were talking to Jesus. But the truth is, you don't really trust the Bible. That's the reason you husbands don't love your wives and provide for them. You send them off to work because you don't trust the Bible. That's the reason you don't raise your children the way that God has told you to raise your children. Because can we be honest? You don't trust the Bible. You say, well, how do I fix that? Get under the preaching of the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more you learn of the word of God, the more the word of God has an effect on your heart. And faith will begin to grow in your heart. The Bible says that he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't know what passages he went to. The Bible doesn't document it for us. I don't know what he showed them exactly. The Bible doesn't document it for us. If I had to guess, I would guess that he probably took them to, John, to Genesis 3.15. I mean, the very first prophecy of Christ where the Bible says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I don't know that he went there, but I would guess that he would start there. If I had to guess, I would guess that he went to Genesis 22 and talked about that great picture of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac and how that pictured the father sacrificing the only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know that he went there, but if I had to guess, I I think he would go there. If I had to guess, I would think that he probably spent some time in the book of Leviticus and going through all the different Levitical sacrifices and showing how they all foreshadowed and were a picture of the coming Messiah. I don't know where he went. If I had to guess, I would say that he went to Psalm 22. If I had to guess, I would say that he went to Isaiah 53. If I had to guess, I don't know where he went, but he went through the Bible. The Bible tells us that in all the scriptures, that beginning at Moses, he began to teach them beginning at Moses and all the prophets expanded unto them and he began to reveal himself to them and I'm just here to tell you something the Bible will transform your life I'm not sure if you're there in Romans 10 but I'd like you to look at Romans 12 real quickly in verse 2 Romans 12 and verse 2 and be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You say, how do, how, do you, how, how do you perform discipleship? How do you get transformed to the image of Christ by the renewing of your mind? See, some of you are probably here tonight, you're like, oh no, I think I've heard of places like this. This is like some, you, you actually believe the Bible? Is this some sort of a cult? I assure you, we're not a cult. Cults try to keep, keep people in This type of preaching throws people out. (laughs) What I will tell you is that we believe the Bible, yes, and we preach the Bible. And it will transform your life if you allow it to renew your mind. And if you want to accuse us of brainwashing, I would just say that your brain probably needs to be washed. You need a renewing of your mind. Because we've been doing it wrong. And God says the answers of life are in the Bible but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Go back to Luke 24. I said, number one, we see the disappointment they had in Christ. Number two, we see the disbelief they had of Christ. Number three, we saw the discourse they were given by Christ. And then lastly, tonight I'd like you to notice the discovery they made in Christ. There's three thoughts regarding this discovery. I want you to notice, first of all, the invitation. Luke 24 and verse 28, the Bible says, And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went. And he, this is Jesus, made as though he would have gone further. I want you to understand the wording there, the wording when it says that he made as though he would have gone further. The way that we see that wording, sometimes the way that 
when our King James Bible was translated to 1611, the way that they worded things was oftentimes, sometimes different than the way we word things. So when you and I read that, we think that he's faking, like he's pretending that he's going to keep going further, but he's not really going further. That is not the idea here. What's actually being said is that he began to go further. He, his actions were, in their eyes, as though he was going to continue on without them. They were on this road to Emmaus. They have been walking for seven miles. Jesus has been expounding unto them the word of God. And verse 28, when they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. He's just going to keep walking. Verse 29, but they constrained him, saying, abide with us. I want you to notice the invitation. They invite Jesus. You say, what can we learn from this? Here's what you can learn from this. You have to invite Jesus. I like that song we sing, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. The truth is this, that Jesus will not force himself upon you. Jesus is not a Calvinist. Sorry to say it. He will stop if you'll invite him. And he made as though he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. They said to him, they still don't know it's Jesus. They said, it's, it's late. It's dark now. It's not safe out there to go and, and, and keep walking. Why don't you stay with us? And they constrained him, saying, abide with us. I want you to notice they invited him. They invited him in. And as a result, verse 30, and it came to pass, as he, Jesus, sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And just for the record, this is not a reference to the Lord's Supper. This wording is used throughout the Bible simply for them having a meal together. They invited them and they fellowship. Go to Revelation chapter 3 real quickly. Revelation chapter 3. In your life and in my life is the same way. And by the way, let me just say this. Yes, this applies to salvation. You've got to call upon Christ by faith to be saved. But I would remind you that these disciples are already saved. The actual application is this, that if you're going to have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you must invite him. This is illustrated for us in Revelation chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to the seven churches in Asia. Here in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, speaking to the uh, Laodicean church, the Bible says, this is Jesus speaking. If you have a red letter edition Bible, you'll notice that these letters are in red. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is not a salvation verse. This is a sanctification verse. He is standing at the door of your heart. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. Isn't this what happened in Luke 24? I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to walk with you and talk with you. He wants to fellowship with you, but you've got to invite him. He made as though he would have gone further until they invited him. And the question I have for you, Christian, is when's the last time you invited Jesus to have fellowship with you? I'm not talking about salvation. When's the last time you opened a King James Bible and said, Jesus, I'd like to commune with you. Let me feast on your word. Let me spend time having you speak to me through your word, and I'll speak to you through prayer. When's the last time that an invitation was extended to Jesus because he stands at the door and knocks, waiting for someone to let him in? So we see this invitation. I'd like to notice also, if you go back to Luke 24, we see an illumination. They've been walking with this man. They don't know who he is. But he's preaching a real good sermon. They're learning and they're like, wow, I didn't realize that. Oh, I've heard that before. Oh, that's what that means as they walk down this road. And then he would have gone on. He made as though he would have gone further and they constrained him saying, abide with us. We see the invitation, but then there's an illumination, verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. I want you to notice that when they began to spend time with Jesus, 
How did they spend time with Jesus? Please understand this. God has no respect of persons. They, in the first century, literally, physically, with the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, spent time with Jesus in the same way that you and I can spend time with him today, spending time in his word. And when they invited him, and they fellowshiped with him, and they, they spent time feasting with him and feasting from his words, their eyes were opened. You know, the sad thing is that most people don't know the Jesus of the Bible. They don't know the real Jesus. They've allowed the secular world and Hollywood. They've allowed Hollywood to give them a depiction of Jesus. I mean, most people today think that Jesus is some skinny, effeminate, long-haired-looking hippie. And I'm just, I'm sorry to tell you something. If that's what you think, you obviously haven't spent time in the Word of God because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. But if you spend time in the Word of God, your eyes may be open and you might get to know Him. Here's how Paul said it in Philippians 3.10. He said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. I'm here to tell you something. Most people have never met the Jesus of the Bible. They've met the Jesus in the movies. They've met the Jesus in the Renaissance art. They've met the Jesus in the fun center churches of today. But they've never met the Jesus of the Bible. So we see an invitation. We see an illumination. And then thirdly, I'd like you to notice an invigoration. You know what the sad thing is? I don't think most people have ever actually invited Jesus to fellowship with them. And because of that, most people have never actually had an illumination where their eyes were open and they got to know the Jesus and the God of the Bible. And I think sadly most people have never experienced an invigoration. Notice there in verse 32. And they said one to another. Because remember, in verse 31, their eyes were open and they knew him, and then he vanishes out of their sight. Of course, this is Jesus' glorified body, and we see him do these things where he just disappears. Later on, we see him just appear in the room. The doors were shut, and he appears in the midst of them, and they think it's a ghost. He vanishes out of their sight. But I want you to notice what they said, verse 32, and they said one to another. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us? It's a spiritual heartburn. It's not like the stuff you have. It's good. (laughs) Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? I'm going to do my best to explain this to you, but unfortunately, I don't know that I have the communication ability to do it. And it's not because I'm a bad communicator. I'm not saying I'm the greatest communicator, but it's not because I'm a bad communicator necessarily, although I may need to work on my communication. It's because I just don't know that this can really be put into words unless you've experienced it. Some Christians experience revival in their hearts. I don't know how else to say it. I've had conversations with my wife about this. I've had conversations with other pastors about this. I don't know how to word it. I'm praying that the Lord allows me to maybe put it into words or frame it into words that would make sense. But all I can say is that some Christians just experience this spark. Just They're alive inside. I'm not talking about salvation. This fire that burns in them. This is what these men are describing. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us by the way and while he opened to us the scripture? There's just something about sometimes when you go to church, you go to a preaching service and the word of God is open and it is expounded and it is explained and it is applied and your heart begins to burn and the Holy Spirit begins to burn inside of you and you begin to realize, yes, that's right. Yes, I need to do that. Yes, I need to go there. Yet there's just a spark. I don't know how to explain it to you. I just can tell you that it's not in most Christians. The spark 
It says, I love God. I want to serve God. I want to give him my life. I'll go where he tells me to go. I'll do what he tells me to do. And the average Christian says, I'll show up Sunday morning. I'll show up Easter and Christmas. I'll show up for special events. Unfortunately, most Christians, because they never offer an invitation, they never really have an illumination, they never experience this invigoration. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I remember as a young person hearing preachers preach on soul winning and the fact that people were dying and going to hell. And we had the gospel and we had the truth and we had to take it to them. And there was just this burning inside of me. There's just this fire inside of me that said, yes, I've got to go with the God. I just, I don't understand. Honestly, I'll be honest with you. I'm not trying to pick on you. I don't understand how you go to a church like this and you're not a soul winner. I don't understand how you can come to a church like this week after week and you don't read your Bible. I, and I'm not picking on you. I'm not mad at you. I'm just saying, I, I don't understand how you can sit under the preacher. I'm not talking about the preacher. I'm not talking about his skills. I'm not talking about how eloquent he is or how dynamic he is. I don't understand how you can sit under the preaching of the word of God and not say, did not our hearts burn within us? Amen. As he opened unto us the scriptures. In Second Peter I think Peter tries to word it for us as well. I just want you to see it quickly. We'll be done here soon. 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1.19. If you start at the end of the Bible and go backwards, Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st, John, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. I'm thankful for the young people in this church. I honestly believe this. I'm saying this from the bottom of my heart. I, I believe we've got some of the finest young people in America here at Verity Baptist Church. So what I'm about to say, I do not say as a criticism because I think that they are great. But you know what I pray for the young people of this church? They would get a spark. They would get a burning inside of them. I'm a second-generation Christian. I was born into an independent fundamental Baptist home, so I can understand how this can become second. It just becomes so normal. Church and the Word of God and in these big days and these big victories and these battles, it can become so second-hand. I'm praying that God would do a work in the hearts of these young people and that they would experience that spark, that fire, that they would one day say, didn't I? hearts burn within us while he opened unto us the scriptures second peter 119 here's how peter said it he said we have also a more sure word of prophecy i just want you to notice the consistency in the bible the bible always points you back to the bible Amen. people criticize you everything you answer is from the bible that's all i got Amen. and not only is it all i got it's all i need it's the word of God. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed. So what should I do? Realize this of the Bible and do what it tells you to do. When it comes to salvation, just do what this tells you to do. Not what religion tells you to do. Not whatever church you grew up in tells you to do. Do what this tells you to do so that you can be saved. When you get married, do what this tells you to do with your marriage. When you have children, do what this tells you to do to raise your children. When, you're, when it comes to your finances, do what this tells you to do with your finances. When it comes to activities, do what this tells you. Hey, you would do well to take heed Amen. to the word of God. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed. Notice it. I just want you to see it. I think this was Peter's attempt to try to put this into verbiage, try to put this into word. 2 Peter 1.19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. Notice what he says. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. 
He says, when you understand that this is the word of God and you read it and you apply it and you take heed to it, he says, it's like the sun coming up in a dark place. He says, but it's in your heart. It's not the sun, S-U-N. It's the sun, S-O-N, as he begins to, to arise in your heart. He said, it's as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star in your heart. You say, what is Peter describing? He's describing, I believe, what these two said on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us? And here's a question I've got to ask you. And I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I do want you to answer it honestly. You ever felt that? You ever felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit working in your heart. What do you do with that? Because you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, quench not the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. I think the unfortunate thing is that sometimes people do begin to feel that fire and they quench it. They begin to feel that fire and they extinguish it. They begin to feel that fire and they put it out. And I'm praying that our young people, and I'm praying that our not so young people, that's a nice way of saying you, old people. <laughs> well, get that fire burning in your heart. Some of you never had it. Some of you need to get it back. You say, how do you do it? It's the word of God. Amen. The psalmist said, go back to Luke. We'll finish this up. The psalmist said in Psalm 85, 6, Wilt thou not revive us again? that thy people may rejoice in thee. It's revival in your heart. I like the song, Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. There was an invitation. There was an illumination. There was an invigoration. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked by us, with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Let's finish this up quickly. Notice there in Luke 24 and verse 33. The Bible says, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They went back. Apparently, all caution thrown to the wind. They were telling Jesus, you can't keep walking, it's not safe. But now they've got something, they're excited. They got something to say, and they're going to go back. The Bible says they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. I want you to notice, I just want you to get this, and I hope it's okay for me to just take a moment to develop this for you. Because they stole, they get there, and they're excited. They just saw the resurrected Christ. And I don't know what these people said. I don't know what, they, what Jesus said to them on the seven miles there. And I'm not sure what they talked about on the seven miles back. But if they were anything like you and I, I would imagine that they probably talked about how surprised the disciples are going to be when they tell them the story how Jesus appeared to them. I mean, I don't know. They might have argued. We know these disciples like to argue a lot. They might have argued about, how are we going to tell the story? Okay, you tell them this part, and then I'll tell them this part. But who's going to give them the punchline? And what are we, well, how do we start? Hey, guess who we had dinner with? How are they going to have this conversation? We were walking down the road, and this guy showed up. I, how? You know, and they were probably arguing. Okay, well, you tell them that part, and I'll tell them this part. I'll tell them how he asked us a question, and I'll tell them how you answered, and then you'll say this, and you'll say that. And then maybe we'll together say, it was Jesus. Maybe we'll, maybe I would, I don't know. I don't, I'm just saying, if it were me, this is the conversation I'd be having. Then I'll say, one, two, three. It was Jesus. <laughs> I mean, right? They're excited. They rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 gathered together and them that were with them. And then the 11 stole their thunder. Look at it, verse 34. Saying, this is not them. This is the 11 speaking to them. The 11 are telling them. They walk through the door and say, hey, guys, we got news for you. And they said, no, we've got news for you, saying the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they're like, we came all this way to tell you something you already knew. Verse 35. And they told what things were done in the way. They said, okay, well, let me tell you my story anyway. 
We were walking to Emmaus and this guy showed up. You already know, but it was Jesus. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in the breaking of bread. You say, what can we learn from this? We can learn this, that the message of the resurrection does not belong to any one person, but it is for everyone. It's not the message that the Pope gives to the people. It's not the message that the preacher gives to the people. It's not the message that the 11 give to everyone else. Here we have these two unknown disciples. We don't even know who they are. We know that one of them is named Cleophas. But we know this, that the message of the resurrection is for all. They went to tell the story, and they said, we've got a story for you. Let me tell you something. Christians from the first century have been telling the story. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. This is a message for you, and it's a message for me. It belongs to all of us, and it's our responsibility to get it out. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this amazing little story, these two disciples. We don't even know who they are, really. But they were on the road to Emmaus. And we see them disappointed and discouraged at first. And then we see them encouraged and revived. Did not our hearts burn within us? Lord, that's my prayer for every Christian here. That's my prayer for myself. That there would be a fire that would be set in our hearts. That we might be revived again. Revive us again, O Lord, is our prayer. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother RJ come up and lead us in a final song. And as he...